Disc 12 Wilson then had his successful re-election in March, when Labour's tiny majority of three was replaced by one of 97 seats. This ought to have ushered in his golden years. His dominance of the Commons had helped finish off Alec Douglas Hume, who was replaced by Edward Heath. The age of the grammar school boys was truly established. Wilson, whatever his failures of vision, had fought a near faultless campaign and won a mandate which obliged the British establishment to accept that Labour truly was entitled to rule. He had shown himself a self-confident showman abroad, in Moscow and Washington, and had pursued frantic diplomacy over the Rhodesian crisis. Now, surely his time had arrived. Yet, there was plenty in the record of that first Wilson administration to give pause for thought. The dithering and manoeuvring over devaluation, the mutual suspicions about screwy little deals already dividing the cabinet, Wilson's own habits of duplicity, notably over deflation, and his attitude to British membership of the EEC. At the centre of all the difficulties the government faced was the dilemma of devaluation. The Chancellor, Jim Callaghan, remained under almost intolerable pressure, as he had been from the day when he took office. At times he seemed close to giving way under the strain. Jenkins recalled a cabinet in July 1966 when Callaghan, later famous for being imperturbable, suddenly started talking away from the agenda about the appalling pressures on Stirling. He suggested to the startled ministers around him both that the objective situation was desperate and that his own nerve had cracked. Wilson hushed him up and brought the meeting to an end, rather like a policeman trying to get a blanket around a nude streaker. Indeed, Wilson regarded any talk of devaluation, public or private, as indecent. Once he, Brown and Callaghan had decided against it immediately after the 1964 election, it was known as the unmentionable. From then on, a complicated three-way dance had been going on in private. Brown turned in favour of devaluation as one way to revive his hopes for expansion and the DEA. Callaghan dithered but wanted any devaluation to be accompanied by the shock of deflation, too. Wilson, against both devaluation and deflation, played the two of them off against each other, always worried that if Brown and Callaghan agreed, he would be scuppered. By July 1966, he was telling Barbara Castle in the Commons Tea Room that Brown and Callaghan were plotting to get rid of him. You know what the game is. Devalue and get into Europe. We've got to scotch it. This, however, was classic Wilson. Castle was an anti-European, so his words were calculated to flatter her. But at the same time, the Prime Minister was telling pro-Europeans in the press that he intended to lead Britain into Europe himself. As the press magnate Cecil King related in his diary months earlier, Callaghan was confidently predicting that Britain would enter Europe. The pledges were only given to keep Barbara Castle and her kind quiet, Apparently, Wilson thinks that after a successful election, he will be able to eat any number of words with impunity. Europe had sliced the party horizontally, cutting through the vertical divisions of left and right. Generally, the party's activists and left-wing MPs believed that the common market was a banker's ramp, a capitalist plot whose rules would prevent true socialism in Britain. The strongest view that Wilson himself had about it all was that he strongly didn't have a view. He had been against on the grounds that Europe would be anti-planning, which seems a little odd. But as he moved camp, he told Barbara Castle, according to her diaries, that 
The decision is purely a marginal one. I have always said so. I have never been a fanatic for Europe. And later, when she accused him of presiding over a messy, middle-of-the-road muddle about conditions for entry, he complacently replied, I'm at my best in a messy, middle-of-the-road muddle. He did not holiday abroad and had a strong sentimental attachment to the Commonwealth and the provincial reassurance of traditional British life. Unlike Jenkins or Heath, he had no friends in continental politics. When the referendum finally came in 1975, both Wilson's wife and his political secretary, Marcia Falkander, voted against staying in, which probably hints at Wilson's private instincts. Yet, in the late 60s, British business saw the European economic community as an essential escape route into a more modern and efficient world, words which triggered a response in Wilson. The press was overwhelmingly in favour. Some of his most effective colleagues, notably Jenkins, were vehemently pro. Whitehall opinion, though divided, was leaning that way too. Europe offered Wilson a new theme when he needed it. In 1967, he and the strongly pro-European George Brown gently perambulated their way around Rome, Strasbourg and Paris, discussing possible British membership, though de Gaulle was still chilly. Brown spent much of the time insulting and clumsily chatting up secretaries. Soon afterwards, Wilson formally announced a renewed British membership bid. De Gaulle, though dismissive in public, privately told the British ambassador in Paris that he envisaged a new kind of Europe, wider but also looser, and led by the strongest military powers, France and Britain, then Italy and Germany. It would allow for more national sovereignty. He implied that this complete reshaping of Europe should be cooked up between Paris and London, then publicly proposed by Britain, after which France would come in to support it. This was not only an early sketch of the kind of Europe that Britain would yearn for, but a classic Gaullist swipe at the federal Europe being built from Brussels. It seemed an act of French disloyalty to their German and other continental allies. In London, unsure whether it was a devilish trap, officials urged Wilson to leak the idea to the Germans. The leaks infuriated almost everyone, de Gaulle most of all, and the idea died. Despite all this, and despite warnings that food prices would rise by up to a quarter as a result of British membership, talks went on. Shortly before Wilson finally lost power, the six member states concluded their own pre-British entry deal, which badly tilted the budget system and agricultural support against the UK and the other would-be joiners. Devaluation and a coup Events, dear boy, duly forced the devaluation option into centre stage. Decade by decade, government by government, the impact of energy policy on British politics is a constant theme. One could write a useful political history which did not move beyond the dilemmas posed by energy supply. We can follow it from the winter of 1947, when the frozen coal stocks blew Attlee off course, through the oil-related shock of Suez and the destruction of Eden to Heath's double confrontation with the miners, ending in his defeat in 1974, the rise of Scottish nationalism fuelled by North Sea oil, and then the epic coalfield confrontation between Margaret Thatcher and Arthur Scargill, taking the story up to today's arguments about global warming and gas dependency on Russia. The simple fact of a small and crowded island, energy-dependent in an uncertain world, has toppled prime ministers and brought violent confrontation to the streets. 
It had its effect on Harold Wilson, too, when the Six-Day War of June 1967 between Israel and Egypt led to an oil embargo on Britain by Iraq and Kuwait because of an alleged pro-Israeli line from London. Nasser, who made the allegation, of course recalled the Suez plot. This, combined with war in Nigeria, hit Britain's finances, hoisted prices and produced more selling of sterling. If this was not enough, two months later there was a huge national dock strike, shutting first Liverpool and Hull, and then, one by one, most of the rest of the major ports, including London. The economic effect was dreadful. The trade figures, a national shock. Wilson lashed out at the strikers. A year earlier, he had been even more vituperative about striking seamen, suggesting they were being manipulated by communists or, as he called them, a tightly knit group of politically motivated men who had failed at the ballot box. Though that strike finished soon afterwards, Wilson's words, reckoned bonkers by some cabinet colleagues, drove a further wedge between him and the left. In the overheated atmosphere of July 1967, there was renewed talk of a plot to oust Wilson and replace him either with Callaghan or Brown. While the Prime Minister was away in Moscow, the pro-devaluers were talking. George Brown, characteristically, was threatening to resign and trying to persuade others to support him as leader, and characteristically failing. Others, including Ben, felt that if he did resign, the whole government would fall. Equally characteristically, since he had a weakness for grand hostesses, Roy Jenkins was at the home of Anne Fleming, who has featured earlier in this book. Wilson later told Barbara Castle that the plotting was directed by ministers who went a whoring after society hostesses. Jenkins responded in his memoirs, There was indeed a certain allegorical quality about the behaviour of all of us that weekend. Wilson kept up his adrenaline by going on an unnecessary trip to Moscow. George Brown went berserk at the Durham Miners' Gala, and I went to stay with Mrs. Fleming at Sevenhampton. Wilson was still determined to resist devaluation. When he discovered briefing papers on the pros and cons had been prepared by civil servants, he brusquely ordered them to be collected up and burned. This was now a personal fight, corrupted by the rivalries and ambitions which plagued the Cabinet. The left-wing devaluers hoped to turn Labour at last into a proper socialist government. They preferred to keep Wilson as leader, but would have ditched him if necessary. The pro-European devaluers would have liked to replace Wilson with Roy Jenkins. The ironies are multiple. As the arguments raged, some on the left toyed with leaving Labour and setting up a new left-wing party based on the trade unions to be called the Social Democratic Party. One of them was the young Neil Kinnock, who would later, as leader, unleash a ferocious war on another party within the party. The title SDP would later be taken not by the left, but by Jenkins and many of the pro-Europeans who followed him. Meanwhile, the devaluation crisis turned into an ungainly and undignified dance, as George, Harold and Jim, with Roy and the rest, joined hands, lurched away from each other, formed new sets and jigged towards humiliation. At moments, Callaghan seemed to think devaluation might be such a national catastrophe that it would force Wilson out and let him in. Brown wanted it for strategic reasons and hoped against the odds it might usher him in as leader. Jenkins may not have been actively plotting, but was much enjoying his stellar reputation in the press and as a leading pro-European. Wilson was determined to fend off devaluation to protect his own position.
Eventually, on the morning of the 3rd of November 1967, the senior economic adviser at the Treasury, Sir Alec Cairncross, told Callaghan at a private meeting that the dance was over. Nothing more could be done. The music had stopped. No further foreign borrowing was available. He would have to devalue. Both knew that Callaghan would have to resign. Though his biographer called this the most shattering moment Callaghan was ever to experience in sixty years of public life, he seems to have taken it calmly and set about preparing yet another round of cuts, the deflation without which devaluation would be pointless. This caused cabinet arguments and threats of more resignations. Wilson, after yet another last-minute attempt to borrow more to see Britain through, eventually accepted that the pound was impossible to defend, even with American support. In a 6pm broadcast on the 18th of November, Wilson announced that the pound was being devalued by 14%, and that defence cuts, restrictions on higher purchase or credit, and higher interest rates would follow too. Callaghan, as Chancellor, felt utterly humiliated. He wanted to leave the government entirely, but was persuaded to take the Home Office instead. Wilson, who had, after all, just torn up what he had for so long insisted was essential to his strategy, seemed curiously chirpy. Normally an astute reader of the mood, he made an awesomely bad mistake in his broadcast by perkily informing the nation that the pound in your pocket had not been devalued. In terms of its immediate purchasing power in the local shop, this was, of course, true, but the suggestion that the pound's international fall in value could be safely ignored was ludicrous and instantly understood to be ludicrous. Wilson was also devalued, possibly by more than 14%. Roy Jenkins now became Chancellor in Callaghan's place. Under him, the Treasury finally regained complete authority. Wilson tried to get his friend and ally Barbara Castle in to run the DEA, but Jenkins was having none of that. From then on, Labour would become as much of a party of Treasury orthodoxy as the Conservatives. After being one of the most energetic Home Secretaries of the 20th century, Jenkins himself spent a remarkable couple of years as one of its more successful Chancellors. Though he never made it to number 10, in terms of personal influence, there is almost a case for renaming the Wilson years the Jenkins years. His 1968 budget increased taxes by twice as much as any previous budget ever, including the wartime ones, and he returned to the attack later in the year and again in 1969. The last of these, Jenkins pointed out, led to the only excess of revenue over government spending in the period between Baldwin and Thatcher, a massive turnaround in the balance of payments and a vast consequent replenishment of our gold and dollar reserves and overseas borrowing capacity. He was, however, lucky as well as tough, as he generously acknowledged in his memoirs. It turned out that the inland revenue and customs and excise had dramatically undercounted the value of British exports. With the draconian budgets designed to make the best use of devaluation, the mood altered. At last it seemed that the elusive grip had been discovered. The trade figures improved. After so long... Could it be that Labour had begun to discover a way to run the economy after all? As we will see, the answer was no. And Jenkins, along with Callaghan and most of the rest of the Cabinet, must take the blame. For the other great issue was trade union militancy, and in particular, the rise in strikes. 
grip regained on the nation's finances would be grip lost on its industrial climate. Rivers of Blood Harold Wilson was always a sincere anti-racialist. He had felt strongly enough about the racialist behaviour of the Tory campaign at Smethwick in the Midlands in 1964 to publicly denounce its victor, Peter Griffiths, as a parliamentary leper. For Wilson, this was rare vehemence. But he did not try to repeal the 1962 Commonwealth and Immigrants Act with its controversial quota system, and in 1965 he and his Home Secretary, Frank Soskis, tightened it, cutting down the dependents allowed in and giving the government the power to deport illegal entrants, offering the first Race Relations Act as a sweetener. This outlawed the colour bar in public places and discrimination in public services and banned incitement to race hatred. It was widely seen at the time as toothless. Yet the combination of restrictions on immigration and measures to better integrate the migrants already in Britain would form the basis for all subsequent policy. There would be a tougher anti-discrimination bill in 1968 and tougher anti-immigration measures to go with it. Never again would the idea of free access to Britain be seriously entertained by mainstream politicians. One of the new migrations that arrived to beat the 1962 quota system just before Wilson came to power came from a rural area of Pakistan threatened with flooding by a huge dam project. The poor farming villages from the Muslim north, particularly around Kashmir, were not an entrepreneurial environment. They began sending their men to earn money in the labour-short textile mills of Bradford and surrounding towns. Unlike the West Indians, the Pakistanis and Indians were likelier to send for their families. Soon there would be large, inward-looking Muslim communities clustered in areas of Bradford, Leicester and other manufacturing towns. Unlike the Caribbean migrants, these were religiously divided from the whites around them and cut off from the main form of male-white working-class entertainment, the consumption of alcohol. Muslim women were kept inside the house, and the ancient habits of brides being chosen to cement family connections at home meant there was almost no sexual mixing either. To many whites, the Pakis were less threatening than the self-confident young Caribbean men, but also more alien. Had this been all, then perhaps Enoch Powell's simmering unease would have continued to simmer, and his notorious river of blood speech would never have been made in the apocalyptic terms it was. Whatever the eventual problems thrown up by this mutual sense of alienation, Britain's fragile new consensus of 1962-65 to 65 was about to be broken by another form of racial discrimination, this time exercised by Africans, mainly of the Kikuyu people of Kenya. After the divisive terror and counter-terror of the Mau Mau campaign, Kenya had won independence under the leadership of Jomo Kenyatta in 1963 and initially thrived as a relatively tolerant market economy. Alongside the majority of Africans, however, and the 40,000-odd whites who stayed after independence, there were some 185,000 Asians in Kenya. They had mostly arrived during British rule and were mostly better off than the local Kikuyu, well-established as doctors, civil servants, traders, business people and police. They also had full British and colonies passports, and therefore an absolute right of entry to Britain, which had been confirmed by meetings of Tory ministers before independence. These people have been called the Jews of Africa, and the parallels between their position and that of European Jewry in the 30s are striking. Like the Jews, they were an abnormally go-ahead, vigorous and prosperous group. 
Like the Jews, they were the object of nationalist and racial suspicion from black Africans rather than white Germans. They too were often accused of disloyalty. When Kenyatta gave them the choice of surrendering their British passports and taking full Kenyan nationality, or becoming in effect foreigners dependent on work permits, most of them chose to keep their British nationality. In the unfriendly and increasingly menacing atmosphere of Kenya in the mid-sixties, it seemed sensible. Certainly, there was no indication from London that their rights to entry would be taken away. The pressure on them grew in ways that also mimicked Nazi treatment of the Jews. At least before the industrial genocide of the Holocaust, the Asians were deprived of their jobs in the civil service. They found they were unable to work or trade in the better-off parts of the country. They faced increasingly unpleasant propaganda. The minority who had opted for Kenyan citizenship found it mysteriously difficult to obtain, and so inevitably they began to make for Britain, their obvious refuge. Through 1967, they were coming in by plane at the rate of about a thousand a month. The newspapers began to put the influx onto the front pages, and the now popular television news showed great queues waiting for British passports and for flights. Enoch Powell, in an early warning shot, said that half a million East African Asians could eventually enter, which was quite monstrous. He called for an end to work permits and a complete ban on dependents coming to Britain. Other Tories, notably the former Colonial Secretary Ian Macleod, felt the party was entirely bound by the promises it had made when Kenya became independent. The Asians could not be left stateless. This division was echoed in the Labour government too, whose Liberals, led by Roy Jenkins, believed the Asian migration could only be halted by pleading with Kenyatta for better treatment at home. The new Home Secretary Jim Callaghan, however, was determined to respond to the apparent mood of worry and anger about the migration. This would mean revoking or cancelling the right of Kenyan Asians to enter. It would be a betrayal of a promise. Shamefully, the same Conservative politician who had made the promise originally, Duncan Sands, was now leading calls to cancel it. By the turn of the year, around 2,000 Kenyan Asians a month were arriving. Almost every aircraft seat from East Africa to London, direct or indirect, was booked. Callaghan decided to act, as his colleague Crossman recorded of a crucial cabinet committee meeting in February 1968. Jim arrived with the air of a man whose mind was made up. He wasn't going to tolerate this bloody liberalism. He was going to stop this nonsense, as the public was demanding, and as the party was demanding. He would do it, come what may, and anybody who opposed him was a sentimental jackass. The Commonwealth Immigrants Act, which effectively slammed the door while leaving a cat flap open for a very small annual quota, was rushed through Parliament that spring. Yet this not only broke the word of the British government at the time of Kenyan independence; it also left twenty thousand people adrift and stateless in a part of Africa that no longer wanted them. The bill has been described as among the most divisive and controversial decisions taken by any British government. For some, the legislation was the most shameful piece of legislation ever enacted by Parliament, the ultimate appeasement of racist hysteria. While for others it was the moment when the political elite, in the shape of Jim Callaghan, finally listened to their working-class voters. Polls of the public showed that 72 percent supported the act. This was the background to Powell's famous speech in Birmingham, 
at a small room in the city's Midland Hotel on the 20th of April 1968, three weeks after Callahan's bill had become law and the planes carrying would-be Kenyan Asian migrants had been turned round. Powell had argued before that the passport guarantee was never valid originally. He was contemptuous of the Commonwealth by now, seeing it as a high-minded constitutional myth which stopped Britain from pursuing her self-interest freely. Most of his political fire was directed at the absurdities, as he saw them, of trying to control the level of the currency and direct the economy. Despite Heath's growing despair about his stiff-necked determination to challenge orthodoxy, Powell was still a member of the Shadow Cabinet. It had just agreed to cautious backing for Labour's tougher race relations bill, the flip side of the Callaghan restrictions. Powell had gone uncharacteristically quiet. He was, however, quite aware of the size of the political explosion he was about to detonate, telling a local friend, I'm going to make a speech at the weekend, and it's going to go up fizz like a rocket. But whereas all rockets fall to earth, this one is going to stay up. The friend, Clem Jones, the editor of Powell's local newspaper, the Wolverhampton Express and Star, had advised him to time the speech for the early evening television bulletins and not to distribute it generally beforehand. He would regret the advice. Here is some of what Enoch Powell said. He quoted a Wolverhampton constituent, a middle-aged working man, who told him that if he had the money, he would leave the country, because in 15 or 20 years the black man will have the whip hand over the white man. Powell continued by asking rhetorically how he dared say such a horrible thing, stirring up trouble and inflaming feelings. The answer is, I do not have the right not to do so. Here is a decent, ordinary fellow Englishman who in broad daylight in my own town says to me, his Member of Parliament, that this country will not be worth living in for his children. I simply do not have the right to shrug my shoulders and think about something else. What he is saying, thousands and hundreds of thousands are saying and thinking. Those whom the gods wish to destroy, he reminded his audience, they first make mad. We must be mad, literally mad, as a nation, to be permitting the annual inflow of some 50,000 dependents, who are for the most part the material of the future growth of the immigrant-descended population. It is like watching a nation busily engaged in heaping its own funeral pyre. The race relations legislation was merely throwing a match on gunpowder, Powell then quoted another constituent, this time an elderly woman, whom he said was persecuted by Negroes. She had excrement stuffed through her letterbox and was followed to the shops by children, charming, wide-grinning piccaninnies. They cannot speak English, but one word they know, racialist, they chant. He concluded with the peroration which gave the speech its slightly inaccurate popular title. As I look ahead, I am filled with foreboding. Like the Roman, I seem to see the Tiber foaming with much blood. If Britain did not begin a policy of voluntary repatriation, she would soon face the kind of race riots that were disfiguring America. The speech was claimed by Powell to be merely a restatement of Tory policy, but its language and Powell's own careful preparation suggest it was both a call to arms by a politician who believed he was fighting for white English nationhood and a deliberate provocation aimed at Powell's enemy, Heath. At any rate, after horrified consultations when he and other leading Tories had seen extracts of the speech on the television news, Heath promptly ordered Powell to phone him and summarily sacked him.
Heath announced that he found the speech racialist in tone and liable to exacerbate racial tensions. As Parliament returned three days after the speech, a thousand London dockers marched to Westminster in Powell's support. By the following day, he had received 20,000 letters, almost all in support of his speech, with tens of thousands more still to come. Smithfield meat porters and Heathrow airport workers also demonstrated in his support. Powell also received death threats and needed full-time police protection for a while. Numerous marches were held against him and he found it difficult to make speeches at or near university campuses. Asked whether he was a racialist by the Daily Mail, he replied, We are all racialists. Do I object to one coloured person in this country? No. To a hundred? No. To a million? A query. To five million? Definitely. There can be no serious doubt that most people in 1968 agreed with him. Plot. Lord Louis and the King Thing. Forty years on, the paranoid atmosphere after only a few years of Wilson's first administration is hard to credit, but there was a rising conviction among some in business and the media that democracy itself had failed. Cecil King, the tall and megalomaniac nephew of those original press barons, Lords Rothermere and Harmsworth, and the effective proprietor of IPC, which owned the Daily Mirror, was at the centre of the flapping. He had originally supported Wilson, both in opposition and in the period immediately after the 1964 election, but was deeply offended when Wilson, who had egalitarian convictions, then offered King only the modish life peerage. King was outraged. He wanted a hereditary title, as befitted the boss of a popular socialist newspaper, preferably an earldom. Wilson, to his credit, refused to budge. To the Prime Minister's discredit, though, he desperately flattered King, courted him, and gave him a string of other baubles, including a damehood for his wife and positions for himself, director of the Bank of England, a seat on the National Coal Board, and another on the National Parks Commission, plus repeated offers of junior government jobs and a life peerage. None of it made the slightest impression on the sulking press tycoon, who went round London telling anyone who had listened that Wilson was a dud, a liar and an incompetent, who was ruining the country and who should be removed as soon as possible. King's theme, not uncommon in business circles, was that Britain needed professional administrators and managers in charge, not dodgy politicians. He insisted that we are coming near to the failure of parliamentary government. The politicians had made such a hash of our affairs that people must be brought into government from outside the rank of professional politicians. His private views came close to a call for insurrection or a coup to be fronted by himself and other business leaders. This culminated in a clumsily attempted plot. On the 8th of May, 1968, according to King's brilliant editor-in-chief, Hugh Cudlip, the two of them had a meeting with Lord Louis Mountbatten, whom we have met in his role negotiating India's independence. As a war hero, former chief of the defence staff and close member of the royal family, Mountbatten had a unique role in public life. He stood above politics, though many believed he liked the notion of being thought a man of destiny and he was much discussed by those who dreamed of an anti-Wilson putsch. He had made his worries about the country known to Cudlip, though denying he wanted to appear to be advocating or supporting any notion of a right-wing dictatorship or any nonsense of that sort. Indeed, Mountbatten's idea of the possible leader of some kind of emergency government supplanting Wilson was 
Barbara Castle. Nevertheless, when King, Cudlip and Mountbatten met with the government's chief scientific adviser, Sir Solly Zuckerman, the talk was wild. King told the Queen's uncle-in-law that in the coming crisis the government would disintegrate, there would be bloodshed in the streets, the armed forces would be involved, and asked Mountbatten whether he would agree to be titular head of a new administration. According to Cudlip, Mountbatten then asked Zuckerman what he made of it. The scientist rose, walked to the door, and replied, This is rank treachery. All this talk of machine guns at street corners is appalling. I am a public servant and will have nothing to do with it. Nor should you, Dickie. Mountbatten agreed. Later, he recorded that it was he who had told King the idea was rank treason and booted him out. King's account of the meeting is different, though hardly less alarming. He claimed Mountbatten had said morale in the armed forces was low. The Queen was worried and asked for advice. To which the newspaper man replied, There might be a stage in the future when the Crown would have to intervene. There might be a stage when the armed forces were important. Dickie should keep himself out of public view so as to have clean hands. Whichever account is more accurate, the meeting certainly took place, and Mountbatten then seems to have reported the conversation to the Queen. King, unabashed, unleashed a front-page attack in the Daily Mirror on Wilson, headlined, Enough is Enough, and calling for a new leader. He was himself pushed by a board which realised he had become a serious embarrassment shortly afterwards. Does any of this matter? There is no evidence that the talk of a coup was truly serious, or that the security services were involved, as has been publicly asserted since. Yet, the Cecil King story counts in two ways. First, it gives some indication of the fevered and at times almost hysterical mood about Wilson and the condition of the country that had built up by the late 60s, a time now more generally remembered as golden, chic and successful. A heady cocktail of rising crime, student rioting, inflation, civil rights protests in Northern Ireland and embarrassments abroad had convinced some that the country was ungovernable. Because British democracy has survived unscathed through the post-war period, to suggest it was ever threatened now seems outlandish. Perhaps it never was. There is a lurid little saloon bar of the mind where conspiracy theorists, mainly on the left, and self-important fantasists, mainly on the right, gather and talk. The rest of us should be wary of joining them for a tipple. Yet... The transition from the discredited old guard of Macmillan-era Britain to the unwelcomed new cliques of Wilson-era Britain was a hard time. Wilson was a genuine outsider as far as the old establishment was concerned, and he ran a court of outsiders. The old Tory style of government by clique and clubmen gave way to government by faction and feud, a weakness in Labour politics throughout the party's history. Wilson had emerged by hopping from group to group, with no settled philosophical view or strong body of personal support in the party. Instead of a Wilson party, represented in the Commons and country, he relied on a small gang of personal supporters, Marcia Williams most famously, but also the number ten insiders, Peter Shaw, Gerald Kaufman, George Whig, and, for a while in these earlier years, Tony Benn, too. Then there were the outside advisers. Some were brought in from academic life, such as the Hungarian-born economists Thomas Balog and Nicholas Kaldor, popularly known as Buddha and Pest. 
Some came from business, such as the notorious Gannex raincoat manufacturer Joseph Kagan, or from the law, such as the arch-fixer of the 60s, Lord Goodman. Suspicious of the Whitehall establishment, with some justification, and cut off from both the right-wing group of former Gateskillites and the old Bevanites, Wilson felt forced to create his own gang. A Tory in that position might have automatically turned to old-school tie connections, or family ones, as Macmillan did. Wilson turned to an eclectic group of one-offs and oddballs, producing a peculiarly neurotic little court, riven by jealousy and misunderstanding. This anti-court gave easy material to Wilson's snobbish and suspicious enemies in the press, ranging from Private Eye, which constantly taunted the insiders with foreign-sounding names, to the MI5-connected Red Conspiracy merchants, and even scions of the Fleet Street Purple. Many in that old establishment, the top brass, the city grandees, the clubmen, struggled to accept that Wilson was a legitimate leader of the United Kingdom. Wilson was paranoid, but plenty of powerful people were out to get him, or at least to get him out. In Place of Beer until the end of the decade, the 60s had not been particularly strike-prone compared to the 50s. Strikes tended to be local, unofficial and quickly settled. Inflation was still below 4% for most years, and being voluntary, incomes policies rarely caused national confrontation. But by 1968-69, to 69, inflation was rising sharply. Wilson had pioneered the matey beer and sandwiches approach to dealing with union leaders, though he found on his first attempt the sandwiches were too thinly cut to satisfy union appetites. But he was becoming disillusioned. That seaman strike of 1966 had been a particularly bruising experience. So, for once, it was Wilson who took a stand. He was supported by an unlikely hammer of the unions, the veteran left-winger Barbara Castle, now made Secretary for Employment. In a homage to her early hero Nye Bevan's book In Place of Fear, she called her plan for industrial harmony In Place of Strife. It proposed new government powers to order pre-strike ballots and a 28-day pause before strikes took place. The government would be able, in the last resort, to impose settlements for wildcat strikes. There would be fines if the rules were broken. This was a package of measures which looks gentle by the standards of the laws which would come later. The leading trade unionists of the day, once famous men like Jack Jones and Hugh Scanlon, saw it as an unacceptable return to legal curbs they had fought for decades to lift. The battle that followed nearly ended Wilson's career and Castle's. Their defeat made the Thatcher Revolution inevitable, though it would not come for a further decade. The failure of In Place of Strife is one of the great lost opportunities of modern British politics. Why did it fail? The easy explanation is that the unions were too powerful, and yet also still too popular, not least on the Labour backbenches. Barbara Castle was neither the most tactful negotiator nor the niftiest tactician. Her angry harangues put up the backs of male newspaper commentators and MPs, who compared her to a fishwife and a nag, just as they would Margaret Thatcher. She made silly mistakes such as going away on holiday in the Mediterranean on the yacht owned by that arch-capitalist Lord Forte during one of the most sensitive weeks, lying in the sun and talking of resignation. Later, while Wilson sat up companionably with union leaders, quaffing brandies and puffing cigars, she would creep off exhausted to bed, 
Yet, both Wilson and Castle were fully aware that this was a struggle for authority a serious government could not afford to lose. In a famous confrontation in the summer of 1969, when union leaders were given a private dinner at Chequers, Scanlon had warned the two ministers directly again that he would not accept any legal penalties or even any new legislation. Wilson replied that if he, as Prime Minister, accepted such a position, he would be running a government that was not allowed to govern. If the unions mobilised their sponsored Labour MPs to vote against him, it would clearly mean that the TUC, a state within a state, was putting itself above the government in deciding what a government could and could not do. Uttered privately, this was just the language which would be heard publicly from Heath, and later even more starkly from Thatcher. Scanlon retorted that Wilson was becoming that arch-turncoat, a Ramsay MacDonald. Wilson hotly denied it, and referred to the Czech reformist leader who had been crushed by the Red Army the previous year. Nor do I intend to be another Dubček. Get your tanks off my lawn, Huey! But the tanks stayed resolutely parked under his nose, Scanlon and Jones unblinking, their gun barrels pointing at Labour's reputation. Wilson and Castle now contemplated a joint resignation. For the Prime Minister also had a weapon of last resort. If he walked away, then the Tories would surely return, with tougher measures still. But as the standoff continued, the unions merely suggested a series of voluntary agreements and letters of intent. They were toughing it out because they had excellent intelligence from inside the government and knew very well that Wilson and Castle were isolated. Not only were the usual forces of the left against reform of industrial relations, all those Tribune MPs attacking Castle for betraying her principles, the scores of pragmatic rebels on the Labour benches and the trade union-sponsored MPs whose paymasters were jerking the reins, but also some key right-wing ministers too. As so often, below the great issue of the hour, personal vanity and ambition were writhing. Jim Callaghan, with his strong trade union links, was utterly against legal curbs on the unions. Now Home Secretary, a former trade union official himself, he voted against his own government's plans at a meeting of Labour's national executive. His enemies were convinced that he thought the failure of union reform would finish Wilson off. In place of strife would become in place of Harold. Callaghan's objections to the package went beyond pure self-interest, but his own ideas about how to deal with the unions were thin to the point of absurdity. As Prime Minister much later, he would be richly and fairly repaid for what he did in 1969. At the time, he was reviled by the pro-reform ministers. In a bitter cabinet meeting, Callaghan retorted to Crossman's plea that they must all sink or swim together with the words, Sink or sink. Crossman spat back, why don't you go? Get out! Callaghan's fellow Cardiff MP, later the Speaker, George Thomas, described him as our Judas Iscariot. Other ministers had their own agendas too, of course, and began to peel away from Wilson and Castle. Tony Crossland, another key figure on the Labour right, hoped that if Callaghan succeeded Wilson, he would finally achieve his great ambition and become Chancellor. Jenkins, however, was not mainly motivated by the hope of toppling Wilson. For one thing, no one could tell whether Wilson's fall would mean his success or Callaghan's. Furthermore, Jenkins knew that since his main criticism of the Prime Minister was lack of principle, to stab him in the back when he did make a stand would look absurd and discreditable. 
Yet late in the day, Jenkins eventually ratted because he said he feared a government smash if the plans were forced through. Tony Benn, who had been warmly backing Barbara Castle before, changed his mind too. After the crucial cabinet meeting, Wilson stormed out, saying to his staff, I don't mind running a green cabinet, but I'm buggered if I'm going to run a yellow one. It is possible to argue that Castle's plans were too hard line for 1969, though late in life Callaghan eventually recanted and admitted penal sanctions had been necessary. But had the Labour government been united behind Wilson on this, then legislative reform of trade union practices might have been forced through even the parliamentary Labour Party of the day and much subsequent grief avoided. Wilson's reputation, Labour's reputation and the story of British politics would have been markedly different. But with the Cabinet as well as the backbenchers in rebellion, Wilson had no choice but to give way. His earlier threats to resign were swiftly forgotten. In a brutal aside about Castle, which perhaps reflected the strain he was under, he said to an official, Poor Barbara, she hangs round like someone with a stillborn child. She can't believe it's dead. The two of them reached a toothless, solemn and binding agreement, under which unions said they would accept TUC advice on unofficial strikes. Solomon Binding was supposed to be a face-saver, but instead became a national joke. Hypocritically, the Cabinet applauded Wilson for his brilliant negotiating, and, hypocritically, he accepted their praise, though Castle, on the edge of physical collapse, gave them a blast of honest contempt. The Tories and the press were rightly derisive. In his memoirs, Jenkins admitted that Wilson, whom he generally did not admire, came out of it all with a touch of King Lear-like nobility. He did not hedge, and he did not whine. It was a sad story from which he and Barbara Castle emerged with more credit than the rest of us. The great background question about the Labour governments of the 60s is whether, with a stronger leader, they could have gripped the country's big problems and dealt with them. How did it happen that a cabinet of such brilliant, such clever and self-confident people achieved so little? In part, it was the effect of the whirling court politics demonstrated by In Place of Strife. Election Upset In the end, the Wilson government was felled not by wild-eyed plotters, but entirely conventionally by the electorate. When Wilson called the election in 1970, he was feeling optimistic despite the failure of In Place of Strife. He knew his enemy. Heath had been the leader of the opposition since 1965, with Tory MPs voting in a secret ballot for the first time. Seen as a ruthless moderniser, he began to reshape the Tory front bench. Out went many of the cod Edwardian grandees. In came people like Peter Walker, another grammar school boy who had made his money in the city, Geoffrey Rippon, the young former mayor of Surbiton, Tony Barber, the former RAF man and lawyer, and Margaret Thatcher, a grocer's daughter, none of them from rich families. Though a pre-1970 election policy conference at the Selsdon Park Hotel outside London was much overhyped as a lurch to the right, Wilson talked of Selsdon Man as some kind of ape-like throwback. Heath was a staunchly pro-business politician. In the 60s and early 70s, after so many years of the more languid, aristocratic Tory party, he seemed like a blast of fresh air. Wilson and Heath cordially detested one another. Perhaps it was because they had so much in common. They came from traditionalist, pious, lower-middle-class provincial families. 
They were born in the same year, 1916, Heath four months after Wilson. His family was poorer than Wilson's, and his working class origins stronger. Heath's father was a carpenter who worked for a building contractor, and his mother was a lady's maid who later took in lodgers. Like Wilson, Heath rose through fierce academic ability and scholarships. Both seem to have been rather solitary and awkward as young men, but benefited from the richness of pre-television community life. Wilson throwing himself into the world of scouting and Methodist clubs, and Heath into music and choirs. Both arrived at Oxford at much the same time and were on the edge of the glamorous and passionate politics of the pre-war period there, though they never seem to have met. As we have seen, the two of them represented the triumph of the grammar school boy in politics, a class breakthrough comparable to what happened at the same time in business, the arts, and the professions. Governing consecutively during 1964 to 1976, they would oversee the near total destruction of the grammar school in England and Wales. Both would represent moderation in their respective parties, harried by the hard left and the hard right, accused of weakness and appeasement. Each was essentially a believer in managerialism and compromise. Patriots and equally proud men, they would come to be reviled, identified with a time of national collapse and failure. They were certainly easy to caricature: Wilson's pudgy face and pipe against Heath's vast manic grin and yacht sailing. There were good reasons for Labour to think that they would see off the Tories yet again. Jenkins seemed to have pulled the economy around and was self-confident enough not to use his last budget for pre-election bribes. It was, in fact, quite popular. The opinion polls were on side, and the press was generally predicting an easy Labour victory. Even right-wing commentators lavished praise on Wilson's television performances and mastery of debate, though he pursued an avowedly presidential style and tried to avoid controversy. Heath was regarded as a dull dud by comparison and harried by Powell, who had returned to the attack again and again before the 1970 election, provoking Heath to denounce him as inhumane and unchristian, and to make it clear that he would never be asked to serve in a conservative government. At the height of their battle for the soul of the party in summer 1969, a Gallup poll suggested 54% agreed with Powell on grants to repatriate what it called coloured immigrant families. By early 1970, 66% of those polled said they were either more favourable to Powell or felt the same about him, and only 22% said their view of him was less favourable. Powell was by now attacking Heath over a broad front of policy, over the need for tax cuts, privatisation, and freer markets in economics, over Northern Ireland or Ulster, and over British membership of the EEC, which Powell opposed as strongly as Heath supported it. So Powell's battle cry for repatriation and an end to immigration was taken by the Tory leadership as part of his campaign to unseat Heath and then replace him. There were plenty in the party and the country who yearned for just that. Apart from the dockers and other marchers, wealthy backers wanted to fund a campaign for Powell's leadership. Marcel Everton, a Worcestershire industrialist, raised money for a national federation of Powellite groups and talked of a march on Conservative headquarters to oust Heath. Wilson's call for an election, however, created an obvious trap which Powell could see very clearly, even if his supporters ignored it. His best chance, by far, would be if Heath lost the election. Then he could attack him openly and perhaps even seize control of the party. Everton, like others, openly said that it would be better for right wingers to vote Labour 
so that the Tory party would fall into Enoch's lap like a ripe cherry. Yet, if Powell seemed to toy with this, he would be forever branded as a traitor by tens of thousands of loyal Conservatives. Either Heath would win and Powell would be finished, or he would lose and Powell would be blamed by so many Tories the party might split. The campaign was characterised by huge coverage of Powell, in the case of some newspapers, engorging half their reporting of the Tories' entire campaign. It has been described as the only general election campaign in British history in which immigration and race have played a significant part. Conservative meetings were full of homemade Enoch signs. Heath and his colleagues were constantly irritated and embarrassed by being asked whether or not they supported their fallen angel in Wolverhampton. Unsurprisingly, Powell was portrayed by Labour and Liberal politicians as the right-wing ideologue behind whom Ted Heath anxiously waddled. Tony Benn went further in this, calling him the real leader of the Conservative Party. He is a far stronger character than Mr Heath. He speaks his mind. Heath dare not attack him publicly, even when he says things that disgust decent Conservatives. Benn went on to assert that the flag hoisted at Wolverhampton is beginning to look like the one that fluttered over Dachau and Belson. Late in the campaign, Powell, who had been hounded by left-wing protesters, finally gave a clear and unequivocal endorsement to the official Tory campaign. Because there was indeed a late surge of support for Heath, it has been argued that Powell was responsible for his victory. But the evidence is thin to prove it, and Powell himself fastidiously declined to claim such a thing. Just before the campaign had begun, Jenkins learned too late that yet more bad balance of payments figures were to be published along with bad inflation figures. This helped tip things away from Wilson. When the results were in, the Tories had won an overall majority of 30. Polls afterwards scotched the idea that Jenkins's pre-election budget had lost Labour the election. In fact, it was quite popular. Powell, according to his biographer, once he realised the consequences of Heath's victory, sat around on his own with his head in his hands deep in gloom. He had realised immediately that, after Wilson, he had been the great loser of the election. And Wilson was bitterly disappointed. He was also surprised. With no home of his own on the mainland, he had to take up Heath's offer of a last weekend in Chequers, while he desperately searched around for somewhere to live. Blood and Shame. The Irish Tragedy Begins. Of the great crises that link Wilson and Heath together, that of Northern Ireland had as much effect on the tenor of mainland British life as any. It brought surprise and embarrassment to millions watching the violence on the streets of the province. It brought bombings, murder and shame. The longer origins of the conflict, from the settlement of Ulster by Scots Presbyterian farmers to the partition of Ireland in 1921 and the Civil War, are outside the limits of this book. In the 50s, and through most of the 60s, Northern Ireland barely appeared on the Westminster radar. There was a devolved Northern Ireland government, with its own Prime Minister and a distinct party system, along with a contingent of grey, reliable, conservative-minded Unionist MPs who rarely made ripples in London, never mind waves. The bigotry of the Protestant majority was the butt of jokes and official disapproval. Yet there was limited English or Scottish sympathy for the cause of Irish unification. Hostility to Catholicism and memories of the inglorious role played by the Republic during the war against Hitler remained strong. If the Belfast shipyards of Harland and Wolfe were barred to Catholics, 
Then, too, were some well-known concerns on the mainland. If there was unfairness in the allocation of housing in Londonderry, so there was in Leicester or Nottingham. There was, admittedly, a blatant form of anti-Catholic constituency rigging that gerrymandered boundaries designed to maximise unionist representation. As early as 1964, when Wilson first met the Stormont Prime Minister, Captain Terence O'Neill, who had been elected the previous year on a programme of mild reform, he was pressing him to end gerrymandering. Mostly, though, this was a time of dozy neglect, which turned out, from 1969, to have been a terrible failure of imagination, malign neglect, whose effects would haunt Britain for the next thirty years. For, under the surface, the unfairness and discrimination in jobs, in housing and in politics had taken the temperature in the Catholic ghettos to simmering point. The changed international climate had something to do with this. Rebellion against injustice was in the air, or at least in the newspapers. Rising protests about apartheid in South Africa and the struggle for equal rights in the southern states of the US had focused attention on the squalid half-secret on Britain's doorstep. O'Neill's cautious moves towards reform had produced a hard-line Protestant backlash, led by demagogues including a young and turbulent preacher called Ian Paisley. In 1967, a civil rights movement had been formed, using the language and tactics of the Deep South, and the following year, marches and demonstrations were being met with police violence. A largely Catholic and nationalist party, the Social Democratic and Labour Party, was formed. Bernadette Devlin of the more radical Ulster Unity Party was elected in 1969 to the Commons, the youngest ever woman MP, on a civil rights ticket. She treated MPs to what one of her listeners described as the authentic, bitter and resentful voice of Catholic Ulster. Wilson told O'Neill he thought he should go further and faster, both on housing and on local government boundaries. O'Neill replied that this would require an election. During it, his Unionist party split and he received a bloody nose, handing over to another, though less effective, moderate, James Chichester Clark. At this stage, apart from occasional raids on arms dumps, the ageing and sparsely manned Irish Republican Army was little heard of. Then, in the summer of 1969, the politics of Northern Ireland erupted. The Apprentice Boys of Derry, a loyalist anti-Catholic organisation, had planned their annual march at Londonderry on the same day and over the same route that a civil rights march was planned. There had been civil rights marches before, but they had been peaceful. This time, ordered not to march, they did so, and were attacked by the police. Members of the so-called B-Specials, an unpaid and part-time but armed 12,000-strong wing of the Royal Ulster Constabulary, were particularly brutal. Among the 75 marchers injured that day were leading political figures, such as Jerry Fitt, who had become an MP and a peer, and a powerful anti-IRA voice for moderation. The bloodied heads and the vengeful use of batons horrified millions watching that evening's television bulletins. In response, the Stormont government promised reforms to local elections, housing lists and parliamentary boundaries. This sparked off loyalist protests. More civil rights marches followed and more attacks on them until, at the beginning of August, there was a serious pitched battle between Catholic residents, loyalist extremists and police in the middle of Belfast. Hundreds of houses burned. Harold Wilson, who was on holiday in the Isles of Scilly, 
flew to Cornwall for a brief talk with his Home Secretary, Jim Callaghan. They agreed to send in the British Army if asked, in return for the abolition of the B-Specials and promises of further reforms. It was a momentous decision, taken without the involvement of the Cabinet. As Crossman recorded in his diary, Harold and Jim had really committed the Cabinet to putting the troops in, and once they were there they couldn't be taken out again, so we had to ratify what had been done. Tony Benn wrote, It looks as though civil war in Ulster has almost begun. One of the myths about the moment when Britain sent in the troops to Northern Ireland was that it was done with little understanding of the dangers, no thought about alternatives, and no appreciation that, arriving to protect Catholic homes, the troops might find themselves a target for Irish nationalists. This is all untrue. Wilson and Callaghan were acutely aware of the dangers and had put maximum pressure on Chichester Clark and the Unionists to hurry through political change, and they got some of what they wanted over the B-Specials and housing. In casting around for alternatives, Wilson even apparently toyed with the idea of a reverse plantation, evacuating the entire Ulster Protestant community out of Ireland and giving them new homes in England and Scotland. When Wilson's press secretary, Joe Haynes, suggested to him that the troops could be there for months, he grimly replied, they're going to be there for seven years at least. Callaghan, whose handling of the crisis was his finest hour, was under no illusion that the troops would soon be facing both communities and would indeed become a target. Ben, attending cabinet with a freshly grown beard which caused much amusement around the table, mused whether this was not the beginning of ten more years of Irish politics at Westminster, which could be very unpleasant. Meanwhile, over in Northern Ireland itself, the hard men were at work. Loyalist mobs reacted with fury to the proposed disbanding of the B-Specials, and IRA men were digging into the various civil rights and citizens' defence organisations of Catholic Belfast and Derry. In November, at a tense meeting in Dublin, the IRA split and the Pro-Violence Provisional Army Council, or Provos, came into existence. Now the nature of the conflict would change. It had begun as a protest about unfairness, bigotry and political corruption. It turned into a fight to force an end to the United Kingdom, and to bring about the unification of Ireland. Inspired by a heady mix of Marxism, Romantic nationalism, and the example of overseas guerrillas from Vietnam to Cuba, the provosts believed that so long as they had the support of most Catholics, they could end the partition of the island. Winning over much of the minority community took time. The IRA's first success was to convince many Catholics living in Belfast, where they were heavily outnumbered, that only they could protect them against the loyalist thugs, and that the British army was bloodied hand in bloodied glove with their enemies. This was not so, but rumour and stone-throwing provocation followed by overreaction and army brutality would soon make it seem that way. In the Irish Republic, many were instinctively with the IRA. In 1970, two Dublin cabinet ministers, Charles Hockey and Neil Blaney, were sacked for being sympathisers with the provost, though acquitted later of trying to illegally import arms into the Republic. Most of £100,000 voted by the Doyle, the Irish Parliament, for the relief of Catholics in the North a year earlier had, in fact, been spent on arms and ammunition. Community defence was morphing into nationalist uprising. This was the crisis inherited by Heath, the nearly man in Irish peacemaking, in 1970. 
He knew little about Northern Ireland when he arrived in office, though he had once been smuggled across the border under a blanket for lunch in the Republic. In one crucial respect, he advanced on the underlying assumption of the Labour ministers. It would not be enough to protect Northern Catholics. He thought they would have to be given a stake in the running of Northern Ireland too. Eventually, he hoped, greater prosperity in Ireland, more trade across the border and common membership of Europe would ease the two communities towards an easier relationship. This is what happened, though only after decades of murder had exhausted them too. The Yachtsman Heath's reputation had sunk particularly low. Perhaps this is not surprising. He was defeated as leader in 1975 after losing two general elections and fell out spectacularly with the new order, Thatcherism. The triumph of Margaret Thatcher's optimistic, if divisive, free market politics attracted a blaze of intellectual, media and parliamentary support, which saw her success as a refutation of Heath's time. The brighter she burned, then, by narrative necessity, the duller he must be. Certainly his attempts to rein in trade union power and to conquer inflation failed. The cause that excited him more than any other, Europe, also inflamed his enemies, who accused him of lying to the country about the true political nature of the coming European Union. Heath did not help his cause by the implacable sulk that followed his ousting, a huff he managed to maintain for thirty years. His own account of his government is wooden and wearisomely self-justificatory, in prose almost as bad as Harold Wilson's. Further, as a loner who could be extraordinarily rude even to his admirers, Heath never accumulated a team of public defenders. Those who worked with him and thought him a fine leader, such as Douglas Hurd, were rarely able to make themselves heard against the surging self-belief and vituperative journalism of the Thatcher years. Finally, Heath had little time in office compared to Wilson's near eight, just three and a half years. Almost friendless, Heath is a political leader whose reputation deserves to be revisited. He was the first outsider to break through the class barriers of the old Tory party, and he promoted others like him to the cabinet. His European vision came first-hand. Before the war, on a student visit to Germany, he had literally rubbed shoulders with Hitler and met other Nazi leaders. Later he returned as a fighting officer to see their final defeat in 1945, and the war marked him more strongly than it marked Wilson. As Heath wrote later, My generation did not have the option of living in the past. We had to work for the future. We were surrounded by destruction, homelessness, hunger and despair. Only by working together right across our continent had we any hope of creating a society which would uphold the true values of European civilization. He was a genuinely compassionate and unusually brave politician, whose analysis of what was wrong with Britain in the 70s was far more acute than Wilson's. His struggle with trade union power conducted at the worst possible time was relentless, but he was up against forces too big to conquer quickly. Like Margaret Thatcher, he believed Britain was in danger of becoming ungovernable. His strategic mistake was to attack Union power head-on and in a single act, rather than piecemeal, as her wilier government would. Like her, he cut taxes and even began privatisation. Unlike her, he was ruling at a time when public sympathy was more with unions than with government 
and when huge rises in the price of oil and other commodities were knocking Western economies sideways. His 1972 U-turn on incomes policy and industrial intervention was indeed a humiliating moment for parliamentary democracy, but while stiff-necked and difficult, mostly Edward Heath was plain unlucky. He had risen through the Tory party in Parliament as a tough chief whip, and then as an equally tough negotiator on Europe in the Macmillan years. But Heath's greatest achievement as a minister had come in 1964, when, as president of the Board of Trade, he abolished resale price maintenance, or RPM. This is one of those reforms which sound dull and are now largely forgotten, but which really did reshape the country. RPM allowed manufacturers to order shops to sell their products at a particular price. A shop which cut prices would be breaking the law. It therefore discriminated heavily in favour of small, relatively expensive shops rather than superstores. Under RPM, the supermarket revolution would have been much less dramatic, and the Tescoification of Britain impossible. Heath believed it stood in the way of proper competition and choice, and was inflationary. Yet were not small shopkeepers natural conservatives? Many in the party and government opposed him, but he carried the day—a crucial defeat of producer interest by the new consumerism. Ugandanasians. Heath in power showed that he was desperately worried about the anti-immigration mood revealed in his most bitter of elections. While denouncing Powell, he moved quickly to pass a highly controversial and restrictive piece of legislation, which removed any right to immigrate to Britain from anyone who did not have a parent or grandparent born in the country. Heath's manifesto had promised a new single system of control over all immigration from overseas. Nobody had spelled out that this system would be designed to exclude blacks, but not whites. Yet the grandparent rule was transparently designed to allow Australians, Canadians, South Africans, and New Zealanders of white British origins to return to the UK, while keeping out the black and coloured people of the Commonwealth and colonies. Powell himself likened the distinction to a Nazi race purity law. He wanted a new definition of British citizenship instead. The grandparent rule was defeated by the right and the left combining for opposite reasons, though restored two years later. Had this been all, then Heath would go down in history as being yet another panicked establishment man, slamming the door to keep his party happy. It was not all, for the Kenyan crisis was about to be replayed at speed in Uganda. Here, the anti-British Prime Minister Milton Obote had just been replaced in a coup by the fat, swaggering, Sandhurst-educated Idi Amin, who announced that he had been told in a dream he must expel that country's Asians, just as the Kenyans had theirs. Amin was clearly a monster whose thugs clubbed his enemies to death with staves, who threatened to kill British journalists, who was rumoured to keep human flesh in his fridge and to feast on it. And who enthused about the way the Nazis had dealt with the Jews, though Powell argued angrily that Britain had no obligation to allow the trapped Ugandan Asians into her cities, Heath acted decisively to bring them in. Airlifts were arranged with a resettlement board to help them, and 28,000 people arrived within a few weeks in 1971, eventually settling in the same areas as other East Africans, 
even though Leicester, becoming the least white city in England, had published adverts in Ugandan newspapers pleading with migrants not to come there. Within a few years, Powell would no longer be a conservative. Heath had confronted him head-on and beaten him. Once seen as a future Prime Minister, or at least as a brilliant Chancellor-to-be, Powell would spend the rest of his life far from even the fringes of power. His ideas, however, would continue to grow in power and influence. His hostility to European Union would inspire the biggest revolt in the modern Tory party, one which kept Britain out of the Euro. His belief in rigorous free market economics would powerfully influence Margaret Thatcher and her circle so that he would be treated as a prophet, Old Testament Enoch. On race and immigration, the picture is more mixed. His views frightened many and made him one of the most detested as well as admired politicians of post-war times. Those who knew him best insist he was not a racialist. The newspaper editor Clem Jones, who tried and failed to track down the little old lady chased by pickaninnies from Powell's speech, nevertheless said he was never a racist. Jones thought he had been affected by the anger of white Wolverhampton people who felt they were being crowded out, even in Powell's own street, of good, solid Victorian houses. Next door went sort of coloured, and then another house, and he saw the value of his own house go down. But, added the newspaper man, Powell would work very hard as an MP for constituents of any colour. We quite often used to go out for a meal, as a family, to a couple of Indian restaurants, and he was on extremely amiable terms with everybody there, because having been in India and his wife brought up in India, they liked that kind of food. End of Disc 12